Okay, African American missions heritage. It's uh, this is largely a forgotten story, and in some ways it's painful, but in other ways it's encouraging. Uh, the question always comes to comes to me: Why aren't African Americans interested in missions? I hear this from missionaries. I hear this from nationals overseas. I hear this all over the place, and. Uh, well, there's a history there, and uh, there's quite, a, quite an amazing history. We have to go back, to understand this, we have to go back to the antebellum period, the time before the Civil War. Now, among African Americans, there developed two theologies, okay? A Southern theology and a Northern theology. Uh, the Southern theology was a theology of suffering and it was couched in the paradigm of the Exodus. I mean, those of you who come from traditional African-American churches or you're familiar with traditional Afri African-American churches, you know this, this quite well. You hear this, this, this whole theme of the Exodus where, 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 where you know, we're coming out, of, we're, coming, we're going towards the promised land. You know, even Dr. King at the end of his life, his very last speech, he talks about, I've been to the mountaintop and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. You know, remember that? Okay, so that was the Southern theology. Uh, it was a theology of suffering. But in the North, uh, the problem wasn't so much suffering, the problem was marginalization. And in the North then, there developed a theology of empowerment. And it wasn't in the Exodus paradigm, but it was in the exilic paradigm. The whole idea that while the people in the South identify with the children of Israel in Egypt, uh, those in the north identify with Israel in the exile. They thought of themselves as having been exiled from their homeland, and they began to uh, think along those lines. Now, this was a theology that, like the southern theology, dealt with all the stuff about salvation and all that. Salvation by grace through faith, it dealt with all of that. But it had an overall, uh, it addressed certain what I would call cultural core concerns. These are life-defining and life-controlling uh, uh, values and or issues, but these are on a cultural level. And so the folks in the North were, were concerned with three things primarily, and, and as a matter of fact, this is pretty universal. These three things were dignity, identity, and significance. You, if you hear Her uh, Karen talk about some of this, you hear this from her too. In other words, the significance question is, well, its significance answers the question, why are we here? Um, you know, a lot of politicians run around and say we're a nation of immigrants. No, no we're not. Not all of us. Uh, some of us are not here by immigration, okay? There's two groups that are not here by immigration, those who are here already and those who were kidnapped, okay? So the significance piece, why are we here? Why are we here? Um, now, there were three, there were two basic um, uh, contributing factors to the African-American view of divine significance. The, 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 the sense is, we are here for some reason. And there are two factors that contributed to this. First of all, uh, Samuel Hopkins, Reverend Samuel Hopkins, let me pull that up right quick. Oh, where's my, where's my remote? Oh, there it is. All right. Yeah, let me show you Sam. All right. Samuel Hopkins, interesting guy. Let me give you his background information. In 1802, he received his Doctor of Divinity from Yale Divinity School. Hopkins went from being a slave owner, a slaveholder, to being one of the first 
Congregationalist ministers to denounce slavery. He turned from slaveholding to being fiercely anti-slavery. Uh, Samuel Hopkins contributed to the development of what we now know as New England theology, and it was later called consistent Calvinism. Interesting. Uh, it incorporated the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Canons of Dort, and it gave greater emphasis to the ethical uh, implications of the Reformed faith. And one of the things you will see, and I'll show this to you in a, in a second here, um, uh, the Reformed faith is a very re robust faith. It's a very robust theology. But unfortunately, it emphasizes only one side of theology. Okay, theology meaning how, you, how do you apply God's word to every area of life, all right? So, um, so it gave greater emphasis to the ethical implications of Reformed faith, uh, namely compassion, benevolence, and liberty. And uh, so with that in mind, let me show you something here. We talk about the scope of theology. Uh, the scope of theology, let's talk about the scope of biblical truth, okay? The scope of biblical truth. If you think of that screen, the whole screen, or whatever the projector is projecting, is all of reality. The Bible addresses everything. The scope of biblical truth is, is complete, right? But now, the, uh, the Bible is different from our theology. Our theology is an application of Scripture, but it is never as big. The scope of theology is narrower than that. Okay, for example, represented by that rectangle. Now, Theology has two sides. There is first the side of what I would call the epistemological implications of the Bible. In other words, don't worry about that word. Epistemology means how do you know you know, right? Right? How do you know anything? So if somebody comes up to you and says, yeah, well, you know, the earth is flat. What is your epistemology? All right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, and uh, in Sunday school, I like to quote this, but in Sunday school, if we, those of us who went to Sunday school, we all learned a nice little epistemological song. Remember that song? Jesus loves me, this I know. Now, what's the epistemological base for that? For the Bible tells me so, exactly. All right, all right. So, when I talk about epistemology here, I'm talking about what we should know about God. And Reformed theology is very strong on that, what we should know about God. It gives you all this, the creator-creature distinction, all that stuff. Great stuff, great stuff. Study at RTS and you'll get it, okay? All right. That's a little plug, right? <laughs> you tell the powers that be at RTS that I did that. <laughs> so it covers about two-thirds of the rectangle, okay? But there's another side to theology that we often forget, that's the ethical implications. Not so much what we should know about God, but how we should obey God. Now, those of us in the dominant culture, we have a tendency to lean more towards the epistemological side, and those of us in the subdominant culture tend to lean more towards the ethical side. That is, that is a primary, fundamental difference between European-American theology and African-American theology, all right? Uh, you listen to, uh, now, the African-American theology, historic. Now, I'm not talking about James Cohen and all those guys. I'm talking about historic stuff. Historic African-American theology can be found in the oral tradition. Y'all know what I mean by that, right? Okay. Who, who don't know what I mean by that? 
Who does? Okay, all right. Well, let's see if I can get some help from those of you who know about the oral tradition, all right? Imagine somebody's in church, and they're getting ready to give a testimony. Traditional church, traditional African-American church. They stand up, and they say, first, who is? <laughs> You see, the oral tradition is alive and well. <laughs> I wanted you to know that Jesus is a bridge. He's the rose. He's the rose. Sharon. The bright. All right. <laughs> On Friday, they crucified him, but early Sunday morning he got up with. Okay, see. <laughs> Okay, so you have this, you have this theology couched in the oral tradition. You know, you won't find a 12-volume tome on African American theology. All right, so it was more on the ethical side. So, if uh, you know, there's a song, there's a lot of songs in there talking about "I will trust in the Lord." You know that song, right? And one of the one of the verses is "I'm gonna treat everybody right." Right? Is that ethical or epistemological? Ethical. Now, if this was in a white setting, if the song arose in that setting, it would come out something like this. I'm going to sign the statement of faith. Okay. <laughs> you, do you catch my drift here? Okay. All right. All right. All right. So, so, so what we have then is theology has two sides. And let me say this. You have to have both sides if you're going to have balance. Now, just one final thing on this. When you read the Bible, when you read the Bible, oh, yeah, by the way, uh, this division can, be, uh, can also be uh, didactic or propositional, and this side can be narrative. That makes sense? Now, how does most of the Bible come at us? The Bible itself, is it more B-oriented or A-oriented, or is it more... Left or, or right? I think it's more, more on the blue side, don't you think? But hey, I love the, ace, I, I love the, the red stuff. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong now. I'm just saying we got to think about that. So Hopkins then, Hopkins, he, then he develops this, uh, this, this interesting theology here. And, uh, and uh, so uh, this theology was a major influence in the Second Great Awakening. You know, if you know about the Second Great Awakening. And during this period, consistent Calvinism became the dominant school, uh, thought, uh, uh, dominant, uh, uh, school of thought among the Congregationalists. And it also led to the emergence of new school Presbyterians. Those of you who know church history, you'll, you'll recognize that. In 1773, Hopkins founded a school in Rhode Island to train blacks for missions. He had this vision early. And this school had a major influence on the thinking of black missionaries. Hopkins' view on ethics involved what he called disinterested benevolence. Disinterested benevolence. All right. Now, disinterested benevolence, when applied to missions, meant basically to be willing to suffer pain uh, and, uh, and misery in order to save another from suffering pain. Uh, it, it means to assist the nations come to, to come to the knowledge of the truth. Uh, it is to contribute. If you assist the nations 
to come to the knowledge of truth, it contributes to the alleviation of human suffering. To promote world missions, he said, is a sign of holiness. Now, the second factor that contributed to this, uh, to this uh, school of thought was what I call kinship compassion. Kinship compassion. Uh, it's a special kinship relationship that many Northern African Americans felt towards Africa and other peoples of African descent. This was a major factor which led to the emergence of African American immigrationist missions movements in the 1840s and 50s. A lot of African Americans were involved in missions, but instead of just sending somebody over, they just took whole congregations and moved them over, transplanted them. All right. So, um, uh, so this movement advocated uh, immigration of select uh, Africans, African Americans to the Caribbean and to Africa. Now, um, that's, a, that's a biblical concept, really, when you think about it, because even Paul display, displayed that in, in Romans, remember? Uh, Romans 9, he said, he said he's, he says all this great stuff. He said, oh, he said can we talk? Remember? <laughs> he said, I'm concerned about my brothers and sisters in the flesh. He said, I'd go to hell to get them saved. Basically, that's what he said, right? And it's not that he favored Jews over Gentiles. It's just that he had the special kinship compassion because he was of that group. And we all should have a kinship compassion, whether it is of our natural group or a group we adopt. You know, I have a thing about, um, I have a thing about South Africa, okay? I also have a thing about Haiti. I've right, never been to Haiti, been to South Africa. So, so there's a kinship compassion. And there are other people groups that I have a lot, a lot uh, of sympathy for. All right, so let's talk about uh, African and Afro-Caribbean missionaries before 1800. A lot of that activity took place on the Gold Coast of Africa. Let's zero in on the Gold Coast, and there we go. That's what we would call Ghana today, all right? And, uh, and uh, a lot of that uh, centered around there. In 1735, Christian Jacob Proton went to the Gold Coast of Africa, which is now Ghana, like I said, as part of the, a, the Moravian missionary movement. Proton was from St. Thomas in the Virgin Islands. 1735? Got that? All right now. Yes, sir. <laughs> okay. In 1765, Prodden went to, to the Cape Coast of Africa to begin a school, and Prodden teamed up with a man named Philip Kwakwe. It took me a long time to figure out how to pronounce his name, but Philip Kwakwe uh, from the Cape Coast. And he was, Kwakwe was the first African to be ordained minister in the Church of England. The school continued under Kwakwe's leadership until 1816. The graduates of Kwakwe's school were so well grounded in the Word of God that they were called the Bible Band, the Bible Band. Now, in 1738, Thomas Birch Freeman, is that Freeman there? There he is. Thomas Birch Freeman arrived on the African Gold Coast. Now, Freeman was a British Wesleyan missionary. He became a major influence in Methodism in West Africa for 50 years. Freeman met William de Graff, of the Cape Coast, and, uh, and he was a member of this Bible band I talked about. De Graff and Freeman then organized Bible bands 
the Bible bands into missions teams which planted Methodist churches all along the Gold Coast. Now, in 1863, John Bryan Small visited the Gold Coast and was impressed uh, with the Methodist church or the work that was going on there. Small was born and educated in Barbados. All right, 1863. In 1896, Small became the bishop of the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church to Africa and the West Indies. African Methodist Episcopal Zion. All right. What's, who knows the significance of that? That's the second oldest existing black denomination in the country. Okay, what's the oldest existing black denomination? That's AME, right? Notice the name. The A stands for what? African. Now, here's a little trivial question. What was, what was the largest black denomination in the 19th century? I, I almost guarantee that you don't know this one. What was the It was bigger than the AME and AME Zion put together. In the 19th century, who was the largest black denomination? Uh-uh. CME, that's a good guess. All right, you ready? The African Union First Methodist, no, the African Union First Protestant Methodist Episcopal Church of the United States of America and elsewhere. <laughs> okay. You don't have to take my church history course to, 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 to find out whatever happened to it. Okay. Uh, he was from Barbados, small from Barbados. In 1896, then, like I said, he became the bishop. In 1898, then, uh, small returned uh, to establish the AME Zion Church with the help of William DeGraff, Jr., and T.B. Freeman, Jr. Now, this black missionary activity happened before William Carey who was called the father of modern missions. All right? Now, we're getting ready to get into African-American missionaries from 1780 to 1900. But as I tell you this, Karen will tell you about some people who even predated them. Okay, and you'll hear about that when she gets up and talks. We think about African-American you know, uh, missions uh, missionaries, the, the name that comes, anybody know the name of the, the first, America's first missionary? Anybody know? Who was America's first missionary? Judson? Judson? Mm -hmm. A lot of people say that. Nope, I'm sorry. That's what the history books say, but they're wrong. The first American missionary was a man named George Lyle. George Lyle. Here he is. George Lyle. Let me give you some background facts. He was ordained, uh, uh, he, was the, he was the first ordained African-American minister. He was a major player in the founding of independent African-American Baptist churches during the late 18th, uh, 18th uh, century. Now, understand what was happening in the church then. Generally speaking, and Karen can tell you more about this, but the early African-American church was under some pretty severe persecution, all right? And then later on, it survived that, and it came along, and, and there were restrictions put on the church. They, they said that you cannot have services without white supervision. And so the next stage then came, became, you had actual black congregations, but they had to be under white leadership, all right? Now, what George Lyle did 
he started black congregations under black leadership. That was a big step. And of course, that caught fire when uh, Richard Allen and, 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 and his group started uh, the AME Church up in Philadelphia. So, his life and his ministry. Lyle was born in 1750 in Virginia. Around 1772, he moved with his master, Henry Sharp, to Burke County, South Carolina. Sharp taught Lyle and most of his slaves how to read and write. And this was in violation of the Negro Act of 1840, which forbade slaves from, from learning to read and write English. In 1773, Lyle was converted through the witness of his master, and he was baptized the following year in 1774. He quickly became a gifted preacher and a self-identified subscriber to the Reformed faith. Okay. I don't understand why our seminaries don't have this guy up, pictures of him. Uh, he was encouraged to preach to slaves on neighboring plantations. Between 1773 and 1775, he established a Silver Bluff Church. He was, he was, um, he was located in South Carolina, on the South Carolina bank of the Savannah River near Augusta, Georgia. In 1783, Lyle became the undisputed leader of African-American Christians in, in, in all of Georgia. And in that year, Henry Sharp freed Lyle to carry on his ministry full-time. Now, but a few weeks after his emancipation, Henry Sharp, his former master, died. And Sharp's children had planned to re-enslave Lyle and had him imprisoned. But Lyle eventually was released from prison and immediately made arrangements to immigrate to Jamaica. And before his departure, Lyle baptized Andrew Bryan, who went on to found the African Baptist Church in Savannah, Georgia, which is still there today. And this is the oldest existing African-American church in the United States. Now, Lyle's missionary journey, check this out, his missionary journey to Jamaica predated Judson's missionary journey to India by 29 years. All right. And when Lyle arrived in Jamaica, he was deeply moved by the deplorable spiritual condition of the enslaved Jamaicans. And as a result, Lyle began to preach the gospel at racetracks. As a black itinerant ex-slave preacher, he was quite a novelty in Jamaica. And therefore, he attracted considerable attention, and news of his preaching quickly spread. And there were those who said that his preaching was very much like that of George Whitfield. 1784, he organized a Baptist church, and which experienced tremendous growth. In less than eight years, the church had grown to about 500 plus. Lyle was also instrumental in planting churches across the, hundreds of churches across the, uh, and throughout the Caribbean. Uh, I, can, I can testify to that. I was, uh, when I was doing my research for the history and theology of the African American church, Lyle was a very important figure. And I, I kept trying to, what happened to this guy? All of a sudden, around about, you know, 1783, he just kind of disappeared. I couldn't figure out what happened to the guy, you know. And then I find out he, he's the one who went to Jamaica. And uh, I, have, I was giving a lecture in Barbados, and I happened to mention George Lyle. People from all over the Caribbean were there. And everybody said, oh, we know George Lyle. We know him. And it was really amazing. 
All right, he was a, he was a very powerful uh, missionary uh, in the Caribbean. Okay, so um, in 1789, he experienced persecution from the colonial officials because his preaching also emphasized the ethical implications of the Reformed faith. And this included a time of imprisonment for his preaching because he was being accused of sedition. I mean, he would say God is concerned about justice as well as mercy. And he was in prison for those kind of things. Now, let's look at some 19th century African-American missionaries. All right, let's go to Sierra Leone. All right, some of you know where that is. There, right. Okay, Sierra Leone. There we are. Uh, okay, all right. Sierra Leone is, uh, where is it? It's, oh yeah, there it is. Yeah, that, that's, uh, you, know, you know where that is, right? That's the Gambia, okay? All right, Sierra Leone. Okay, now, in 1810, a man named Paul Cuffey, Paul Cuffey, uh, sailed to Sierra Leone to explore the possibility of transferring missionaries in community. Cuffey was a black Quaker who owned his own shipping vessel with an African-American crew. All right. He suggested Sierra Leone as a mission field in 1788. Between those years, between the years 1806 and 1816, 16,000 freed slaves arrived in Sierra Leone. And of course, you know that, of course, you know the capital of Sierra Leone is called what? Freetown. Freetown. There you go. There you go. Many of these had been recruited as missionaries by Paul Cuffey and Samuel Mills. Whole congregations led by their pastors migrated to Sierra Leone. And I think one of the reasons why these things are not recorded in missions history is because the missions agencies did not recognize this method of missions. Okay. Um, men like uh, Gato Perkins and William Ash dubbed, uh, doubled as missionaries and ship captains. Okay. In 1818, Samuel Mills and Ebenezer Burgess went as missionaries to Liberia, and Samuel Mills died in Liberia soon thereafter. As late as 1878, Bishop John H. Brown of Richmond, Virginia, left on a ship called the Azores. It was his ship. He went, they went to Liberia, and 30 members of his church sailed with him. And on his way, there were thousands of active, uh, in this way, there were thousands of active uh, black missionaries uh, in Africa in the 1800s. The resettlement missionary strategy, like I said, was in the tradition of the Moravian, uh, the Moravians and the anti-Baptist. Anti but in 1890, hundreds of churches were all growing and, and, and flourishing throughout Africa. The, de the, the, the denominations uh, that were involved included the National Baptist Convention, the AME Church, and the AME Zion Church. Several of these leaders and theologians became part of what I call a transnational black community, and they spoke with authority. They traveled between the United States and Canada, Western Africa, and the Caribbean. 
And these leaders and theologians included several northern antebellum African-American theologians. And most of them, most of them were Presbyterian or Baptist who had subscribed to the Philadelphia Convention of Faith, a Confession of Faith in 17, of 1742. And the Philadelphia Confession of Faith was almost word for word the Westminster Confession, except when it came to baptism. All right. Yeah, I just, I'd like to enlighten them a little. No, no, I'm kidding. Anybody wants to learn how I journeyed to baptism, I'd be glad to explain it to you. All right, so that's what was going on. There's a, quite a lot that's going on there. All right. All right. Now, let's look at African-American theologians of the antebellum North, time before the Civil War. Anti-African-American theologians. The first one of, of note is a man named, oh, what happened? I, I got, got behind myself. Okay, okay, let's go out of that. Okay, here's a very interesting character. Henry Highland Garnett. Henry Highland Garnett. In 1843, now, you know, if I were to say, who said this? We want freedom in this society by any means necessary. Who said that? Oh, are you that far separated from history in the 1960s? Come on. Malcolm X. You think of Malcolm X, right? Okay. Henry Highland Garnett said that 120 years before. And he was a born-again Reformed Presbyterian. Okay, uh, in his address to the, uh, to the National Convention of Colored Citizens in Buffalo, New York, in 1842, he challenged slaves to reject their state of slavery and to strike for their freedoms. He said, it is your duty to do this. Very interesting. You ought to pick up a speech from that. All right, so that was Henry Highland Garnett. He had an incredible history, and he was one of these leaders in the transnational black community. He went back and forth. And then you have Reverend Nathaniel Paul. Um, Nathaniel Paul. He was the pastor of the African Baptist Society in Albany, New York. I want you to notice something. You know, we, we talk about uh, African this and African that. You, you, you hear this, right? You know, you heard of, you heard of Afrocentrism, right? You've heard of this, right? All right. All right. And people think that Afrocentrism is something that came up in the 1960s or recently. Look at this. 1700s, 1800s, they're saying African this and African that. What's that all about? This was an early form of Afrocentrism. And let me tell you how it worked. It was theological. All right? What does Romans 12, verse 2 say? Be not conformed to this world, right? But be transformed by the renewing of your minds, right? Is that what it says? All right. This is what they thought. This is, this is their thinking. You know, everybody knew, you know, when we came here, everybody referred to us as Negroes, right? 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 Or slight variations of that term. Okay. <laughs> okay. Now, here was the thought. If you let other people label you, you end up letting other people define you. And when other people define you, they define you on the basis of themselves. And so if somebody's going to, if I'm going to judge you on the basis of myself, then you're going to be inferior by definition because you can't be me as well as I can be me. Does that make sense? So if others judge us according or define us, then it's going to be definitions of inferiority. So what they said is that we were not created by God as Negroes. We were created as Africans. 
Romans 12, 2. That was the basis of it. Now you think, gosh, you know, what happened? How did we lose that concept? That was originally, oh, by the way, you want to hear something else? You ever heard of the term Pan-Africanism? That's a Christian concept too. The whole idea of Pan-Africanism, that was a northern thought. God has raised us up that we might take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the rest of the African diaspora and beyond. That's what they called Pan-Africanism, early form. Christian concepts. Okay, so we're talking about Reverend Paul. Okay. He was pastor of the African Baptist Society. Notice all this African this and African that, right? He expressed his views in 1827. And this is what he argued. This is what he argued. The regeneration of Africa was dependent on biblical teaching. African Americans had a special duty to participate in this regeneration, and the day would come when the sons and daughters of Africa would go back to the land of their fathers and spread the gospel of Christ. If that isn't a missionary statement, I don't know what is. All right. Now we've got two guys who work together, Reverend James Theodore Holly, Reverend Martin Robinson Delaney. This is what they said. The rape of Africa and the enslavement of African peoples could be ended if a strong black nation could be established in Africa or the Caribbean. The strong black nation could use its economic, diplomatic, and military powers to rescue Africa and African peoples from the destructive aims and policies of other nations. Uh, the general aim of this was the uplift and progress of Africa. And what he was saying is that you've got to do this through missions. All right, here's, here's another guy, James William Charles Pennington. In 1841, he led a major effort to coordinate Pan-African missions on the national scale. He argued this, that African-Americans had a special obligation to become involved in, mission, in, in African missions. And he was aware, he was aware of the, what I call the Christianity-ism that had baptized a lot of the excesses of colonialism. And he, he, he wanted nothing to do with that. All right? All right. So he, he, he recognized that that so-called Christianity wasn't the real thing. He was anti-colonial, by the way. All right. Now you've got another guy named Reverend A.W. Hansen. I don't have his picture, but this is what he said. He said, the destiny of African Americans is ultimately connected with the regeneration of Africa. Why do they talk about regeneration of Africa? Because the slave trade had decimated Africa. And by the way, the slave trade was brought by the Muslims, not by the Christians. It was, it was very, very brutal. And uh, all right. Now, here's another guy, Reverend Augustus Washington. Augustus Washington. He said this. He said, for too long... Africans had been preyed on by the ruthless hands of European and American avarice and oppression. He said, in the providence of God, it was imperative that we promote the uplift of Africa through evangelism. Godly men and women of color must support ministry in Africa. The elevation of African Americans was intimately con connected with the future prosperity of Africa. This is antebellum. This is before the Civil War. Lewis Woodson, quote, the majority of the world's populations are dark-skinned people. And then when I say African-Americans, would, they would either say American Negroes.
or something like that, but I'm just contextualizing it for you. You got me? Okay. Uh, he said African Americans had a special charge to go out and take the word of God to Africa. All right. Reverend Alexander Crummel. Does that name ring a bell to anybody? Alexander Crummel. Yes? No? All right. W.E.B. Du Bois. Does that name ring a bell? All right. If it wasn't for Crummel, there would not be a Du Bois. All right? All right. Uh, he, was, he emerged in the, in, the, in the late 1850s. He was the first president of the, uh, the uh, American Negro Academy. And he was a mentor to W.E.B. Du Bois. What's, what's the idea that Du Bois is best known for? He talks about we should be led by the what? Towns of Tenth. Where did he get that from? He got that from Crummel. Okay. <laughs> he emphasized, uh, Crummel emphasized the need for economic development in Africa. You know, as we talk about economic development, that's that B side, that's that practical stuff, right? Uh, the need for African descendants around the world to develop economic ties with the motherland. He believed that strong economic ties with Africa uh, would lead to the development of uh, uh, Negro commercial power in Africa and in other lands where Africans live. He said uh, the prosperity of Africa could be assured if the natural resources and wealth of Africa were properly developed and if Africa and her transplanted descendants could gain control of that development in, and, uh, in, uh, you know, and the resulting benefits. Now I want you to notice that these guys, they're talking about an empowerment strategy. They're coming over with the gospel and they're saying, but well, we want to help you get, get on your feet. We want to help you recover. Now, there are some other people who weren't too keen on those ideas. And then he goes on and says this, quote, The God-given mission of the American Negro was to rescue Africa from ruin, to empower oppressed people of African descent, and to destroy the power of the devil in his strongholds by ushering in light, knowledge, hope, and Christian faith. Uh, Crummel was also aware of the presence of Islam in Africa, and he wasn't too impressed because he knew that, uh, that Islamic Arabs had enslaved Africans and sold the sons and daughters of Africans to, into American uh, slavery. And the Arabized Africans uh, had sold their fellow Africans into slavery too. He knew that this was the case, so he wasn't all enamored by Islam. Crummel pointed to the ministry of the AME Church as proof that African Americans were up to the task. The, uh, the AME Church by this time had established home missions. They had founded a college. And uh, by that time, the 14th and 15th Episcopal districts were already functioning in Western and Southern Africa. It blew me away. The first time I went to Africa, I went to South Africa, and I found AME churches all over the place. Uh, it just kind of blew me away. Okay, so that's antebellum period, antebellum period. Okay, now, uh, so this is a lot of surprising information. I mean, I, it just kind of blew me away when I, when, I, when, I, when I uncovered it. Okay, now let's talk about the African missions scene between 1850 and 1900. What was going on in Africa in terms of missions in those times? So first, let's go to Nigeria. Nigeria, there's Nigeria. All right, all right. 
1860 to 1872, 1,237 Brazilians and Cubans, together with 1,533 Sierra Leoneans, migrated to Lagos, Nigeria. Why did they do that? Because they were involved in missions. This was at the encouragement of black pastors and missionaries who had gone to Nigeria from Sierra Leone. Their goal was to expand Christianity to Central Africa. And in 1875, the transnational black community, remember I talked about those guys, they were well established throughout the continent of Africa. Uh, few, if any, missionary societies were able to succeed in West Africa without the help of the black missionaries who gave them entree. Now, if you look at missions history, you will find there's a mission board called the, 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 the uh, Sudan Interior Mission or the African Inland Mission. You ever wonder why is interior inland? What was going on? By the time these European missionaries got there, the black missionaries had the whole coastal area sewed up. <laughs> well, what could they do? They had to go into the interior. But in order to get into the interior, they needed the black missionaries to give them entree. Interesting, isn't it? But we, that's not in the history books. All right. All right. Um, so, um, oh, here's a guy. Here's... Here's, a, here's an interesting guy, Samuel A.J. Crother. Samuel A.J. Crother. He and many of his fellow uh, uh, followers dominated the Anglican Church in West Africa just prior to 1875. Crother was a Nigerian by birth, and he was an Anglican bishop in the Niger Valley. Now, what was going on? See, all these things are established. Now, what's going on in, in, uh, in, in Europe at this time? Okay, well, uh, first of all, the Industrial Revolution is hitting Europe by this time, right? The Industrial Revolution hit America, right? So what, what was going on? There were, there were colonies in Africa up to this point, but the, the colonies were kind of laid back about things. You know, they said, oh, yeah, we got a colony, but it's no big deal, you know. All right, but what happened, what changed everything was the consolidation of colonialism in sub-Saharan Africa. And what led to this? Like I said, the Industrial Revolution in Europe, and when you have the Industrial Revolution, you have an increased need for raw materials, right? All right. Now, one thing that contributed to this was the development of the ocean-going steamship. Now, all of a sudden, you, didn't, you weren't dependent upon the trade winds. You can Make, you can make a schedule going back and forth. All right. The next contributing factor was the opening of the Suez Canal in 1869. The next contributing factor was the building of railroads in many of the colonies. Now you can get into the interior and bring the stuff out to the coast very easily. And because of that, there was an intensification of colonial activity in sub-Saharan Africa. <clears throat> and... Um, there developed disputes among the colonial powers over territory and rights to the resources of Africa. And so the, the colonial powers began to fight among themselves and clash. And it got ridiculous until uh, German Chancellor Otto von Bismarck called a meeting in Berlin in 1884 and 1885. It was called the Conference of Berlin, and it was there they wanted to settle all this mess. 
So what they did, they had all these colonial powers come together and they carved up sub-Saharan Africa. The amazing thing is not one African was present at that meeting. And so what happened is that the boundary lines, and that's one of the problems that Africa has today, the boundary lines are arbitrarily set. It split tribes, it grouped uh, you know, tribes together that didn't fit together and all. Look at Sudan, look at that mess, you know what I'm saying? All right. And so once they settled all those disputes, now they got a problem with all these black missionaries in Africa. They're talking about developing the resources and da-da-da-da-da, right? Now, well, the Europeans, they need the resources, right? So the anti-colonial stance of the black missionaries, the African and Afro Afro-Caribbean missionaries, was seen as an obstacle to, to the commercial interest of the colonial powers. Now, tensions developed between black missionaries and the, uh, the, the European-dominated mainline churches. For example, leaders like T.B. Freeman chose to identify more with the nationals than with the mission society that sent him. 